You have reduced the Prophet ﷺ to a liberal. Na'udhu billah. You have reduced the Prophet ﷺ to a postmodernist. Or you've reduced the Prophet ﷺ to this weak character. As I said earlier, allow the prophetic character to represent itself. Mm. Don't frame it from your from your ideological perspective, whether it's left, right, up, down, middle, whatever, yeah? Mm. Just allow it to speak for itself. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. After a brief pause, we are back and now on YouTube video and our popular audio podcast platforms. If you are listening on our traditional audio podcast, why not head over to our YouTube channel to see our accompanying video? Remember to subscribe to our channel and comment on our new format. In a moment, I explore with Hamza Zortzes the crisis of the modern Muslim man. But first, here's my take on the topic. We live in a fast-paced world dominated by technology. Social media has enhanced our lives and given space for Muslims to build networks, raise the profile of beleaguered members of our ummah and forward the call of Islam. Whereas in the past, traders and da'is would physically cross continents to convey the deen, Today, Twitter and Facebook allow us to generate da'wah online and to reach every household. With the goodness that comes from this compression of time and space, there are also challenges. In their eagerness to contribute to da'wah, many young men often lack the necessary characters to meet its requirements. Borrowing from the worst marketing strategies, they employ clickbait, shock and awe tactics and cheap stunts as a shortcut to achieve electronic likes and fame. Response videos and futile debates are used to curry favour with their growing base. This form of dawah often resorts to exaggerations and lacks nuance and study. It sometimes leads to more harm than good, turning people away from the message and in the process producing a new generation that makes the same mistakes. Hamza Zortzer shares my concerns about this approach to dawah. I asked him about his journey and how he believes the community must address the absence of good mentoring and a program of personal development. We also discussed the general perceptions, right or wrong, about young Muslim men. I asked his thoughts on Andrew Tate. This is where he gets very animated and I think he offers a nuanced position on the subject, some of which I found hard to disagree with and some of which I would express differently. But as you know, The Thinking Muslim is a platform to explore our best thinkers' ideas in a respectful way. And Hamza's contribution to this topic comes from deep experience and study. Brother Hamza, welcome to The Thinking Muslim podcast and welcome to our new studio. Jazakallah for having me. Barakallah Fik. It's really a pleasure to have you with us today. Now, today I want to address a number of topics uh, I want to address what many describe to be the parlous state, possibly, of young Muslim men and their spiritual and social upbringing. There's a lot being said about the absence of a correct uh, process of tarbiyah within the Muslim community, of acquiring attributes of manhood, of the Quranic model that has been imbued into the Sahaba. But I want to dig deeper today and explore the world of online socialization and peer groups and how practically Muslim children can be raised in a balanced way, particularly here in the West. Now, Hamza, I think our audience to the Thinking Muslim will be familiar with your da'wah activities. They may not know that I've seen you develop over a number of years, alhamdulillah. Would you say you're a different person today to how you were maybe 20 years back when you began da'wah? I hope so. <laughs> how so? <laughs> How so? Oh, it's a very good question. 
I think when I started engaging in dawah, a lot of it was to do with maybe just proving myself right, mm. maybe imposing, not being imposed upon, and looking good because that's the nature of the nafs, right? Yes. So the nafs wants to look good; it doesn't want to look bad. Yeah, it wants to impose; it doesn't want to be imposed upon. It wants to be right and it doesn't want to be wrong to the degree that you give up the right way of being. That's shaitan, right? So shaitan is our greatest teacher from that perspective. Mm. Shaitan teaches us how not to be. So when you're young, especially when what I was 22 years old, I believe, 23 years old, around that age. Some would argue my brain wasn't even developed properly by then. So a lot of it was ego-driven, mm. I guess. And it's not just ego-driven. Of course, you have a love for the truth, you have a love for Allah, you have a love for Islam, its values. But at that stage of my development, I would say it was driven by the ego. Yes. Not to the degree that I gave up the truth or I thought I was better than others per se, Yeah. because I wasn't brought up like that. But there was an element of, I'm right, you're wrong. I want to impose, I'm not going to be imposed upon. I want to look good, I don't want to look bad. So hopefully... I'm not saying that's totally changed because even now, just to be authentic, you know, you want to come across well and you want to come across as articulate and smart and you want to be careful with your words. But I think now there's more of an authenticity as you get older and hopefully as you get humiliated from your experiences and you learn, you engage with the tradition in a more deeper way, you start to realize, hold on a second, this is not really about me. We need more of an Allah-centric focus in your life, an Akhirah-centric vo- uh, focus. You have a vision that is Allah-centric and Akhirah-centric. So things change, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, hopefully there's been a change from the perspective of it's not as ego-driven as before. Although it's still there, of course, for sure. Do you regret starting out in that was so early on in your life? I mean, you became Muslim at, what, 22, 23? When, when 22. 22 years old. And I think, as far as I can remember, you were involved in that activity straight afterwards. Would you have preferred to have spent some time out to develop yourself before you engaged in Dawa? What a question. <clears throat> Sorry, you, get, you caught me, you caught me. <laughs> Emotional. So, yes, absolutely. I'll tell you why. I think, and this is one of my chips on my shoulder, I think, from the point of view that, you know, the Islamic tradition is a very profound tradition. And when it comes to ilm and knowledge and abstract knowing, it's like a seed and you can't plant a seed on a rock, right? And I think it's very important that when we get new Muslims or people embrace Islam or even people have just rediscovered Islam, there needs to be a process of making the soil fertile or making those hard rocks softer, right? And making them into soil, if you like, because you can't plant a seed on a rock. And a lot of that is to do with really internalizing the kind of fundamentals and the basics of Islam. And I'm not saying from an abstract perspective, Mm but from a phenomenological perspective, a first-person perspective, that I'm engaging with the tradition. I know Allah exists in an abstract sense. I know He has names and attributes. I know He's worthy of worship. I know the Prophet is is the final prophet. But what does that mean in my life? How am I engaging with that? How am I relating to that? Because generally speaking, especially in a Western context, especially because of liberalism and neo-Marxism and postmodernism and all the identity stuff, We see Islam as some kind of ethno-religious identity marker. It's like a badge that you wear or a hat that you wear. But Islam transcends that to a degree, of course, because Islam is more about a way of being, because 
you know, a mujahid is someone who engages in jihad, right? right. Struggles. So he's the one who struggles. A Muslim is someone who surrenders to Allah. It's a way of being. And interestingly, many ulama describe iman as what's in your heart, what's on your tongue, and your actions. So what you have here, what, what you're saying, how you're expressing yourself, and how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others, and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a way of being, a way of becoming in the world, which is based on a fundamental truth, which is the aqidah of Islam. We need to get people to engage in that process much more rather than it being just politics or identity. And I'm mentioning politics here not in an Islamic sense, in a secular sense, yeah? And it's some kind of like ethno-religious identity marker. It's a badge that you wear. We don't focus on the way of being. And when it comes to ways of being, you can't teach that in a book, bro. Yeah. You just can't. You have to, Ways of being give birth to ways of being, right? If I want to become humble, I'm not going to read it from a book. There may be something there, but I'm going to get it off you. I'm going to get it off somebody else, right? So when I sat with a scholar once and he was like held to account in public and the way he, with humility, it was like a tsunami of humility that came across and it just engulfed everybody and you just absorbed that and then you became it. So passion gives rise to passion. Love gives rise to love. Certainty gives rise to certainty. So ways of being give rise to ways of being. So you need to have good role models around you that don't see Islam in a kind of reductionist sense that it's just a set of abstract beliefs, but it's a way of being. This is how you connect with Allah. This is the salah and so on and so forth. So that I think was missing. Like I didn't really understand why Allah is worthy of worship in the first few years. Yes. And when I started developing myself further, I was like, oh my God, I, I missed out. Or, you know, there is so much more to Islam than I realized. Yeah. It wasn't just like kind of, you know, I call it dawa functionalism. In the philosophy of the mind, you have this approach to the mind called functionalism, which is inputs and outputs, basically. We should be what I call dawa holism, adopt dawa holism, which is a holistic approach to the dawa. So dawa functionalism is you type in an algorithm, an abstract algorithm, assuming the human being is, an, is a, just an aql, just an abstract intellect, and you're going to get an output. But that's not what the human being is. We're far more dynamic. We have a ruh, we have a fitra, we have a qalb. The aql actually, according to the majority of the ulama, is a function of the qalb. And the, and the qalb, the taqallub, it wavers. And it has shahawat, which is, you know, blameworthy desires. And shubahat, destructive doubts. And it has diseases like kibr, arrogance, and ujub, self-amazement, and hasad, blameworthy jealousy, and riya, ostentation. These are the four major spiritual diseases of the heart. So there's a dynamic thing going on. So we can't just assume, here's some knowledge, here's a book, here's some arguments, and, you know, the output's going to be there. Human beings don't work that way. Sorry for waffling, but I think, no, you know, it's... it was a big issue for me. You caught me because, you know, I and I don't want other people to face the same issue. And I really believe in the work that I do, we do a lot with shubuhat, destructive doubts. And even those destructive doubts come in the form of abstract intellectual arguments. Mm. In the majority of our mentoring, in the majority of my personal mentoring, when we do it with the organization, even personally, I would say 80 to 90% it's not intellectually driven. Really? Yeah, honestly. It's spiritually driven. It's based on something psychodynamic, parenting, trauma. And the intellectual stuff comes after that's used as an excuse or it's a veil that's hiding another pathology or something else that's going on. Because really, at the end of the day, Islam is so true. Sometimes it doesn't need to be proven. I know that sounds really weird for someone who's written a book about theophilosophy and so on and so forth. Sure. But when the fitra is not clouded, yeah. if it's like, you know, in its natural state, if you like, it's a so self-evident. It's, it's like touching this table, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the process of life, people get trauma, things happen and 
Anyway, we could talk about that a bit later. But yeah, so I don't know if I've answered your question. No, you have. <laughs> no, you have. I mean, I don't know. I mean, are you being a little tough on yourself? I mean, I'm just thinking about the Prophet والسلام, and the early message. Uh, I once went to a lecture and there was a brother from America who did uh, some calculations and he came to the conclusion about the average age of the young Sahaba was probably, I, I mean, I can't remember the figure, but it was 16, 17. I mean, the average age, it, maybe even younger. I mean, Ali radiallahu anhum was much younger, right, when he embraced Islam. Mus'ab ibn Omer. Mm. These were very young people. And I suppose without the Sahaba, Ridwan Allah we would be nowhere, yes. right? You know, the message of Islam would not have carried. And so Islam came about in its primary da'wah, came about through youngsters. Yes. I mean, of course, these people grew and they developed and within years they became statesmen and politician and mujahid and, and scholars and we know that. But at the very early stages, these were young, very young men in, in comparison to their society. I wonder whether... I suppose you get my, my point. I suppose whether you're being tough on yourself in the sense that as the Sahaba developed, so were we in, in that one. So, 100%. I mean, yeah. I don't look back in regret ah. because I, I truly believe that anything that Allah chooses for you in your life is always going to be the best thing. Good. Anything. Yeah. Right. You just have to react to it in the right way. Yeah. So I truly believe that even things that are like you cannot understand, Allah for the believer, you have... You have good opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that really is the basis of, of strong iman, right? So having a good opinion, good expectation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I don't regret from that perspective. But you just look back and you think, what would I do now? Or what would I try and teach someone now? So if you were to write a letter to yourself at the age of 22, you've just come to Islam and you open up this letter, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, uh, this is very hypothetical, even for my standards, right? But you open up this letter from, my maths is terrible, 42-year-old. You look like you're 30, by the way, Hamza, but 42-year-old Hamza. Um, what would you say to yourself? <clears throat> Sorry, these are powerful questions. <laughs> what would I say to myself? I think I would say to myself, the first thing I think I would say is don't don't lose hope in the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Yeah, that's very important because yes. when you're involved in dawah, there's going to be times where it's going to be quite dark. Mm. Especially in the early age, we didn't have the systems and the structures and the organizations that we have now, right? True. The other thing I would say is focus on ikhlas. Like one of my greatest lessons, and I try and teach this in the advanced DAO training courses and everything that we try to do is for people to focus on ikhlas. Because at the end of the day, DAO, activism, doing this type of work, even engaging in, on this podcast, it's an act of ibadah, it's an act of worship. Oh. It's actually a noble thing. Like what you're doing here could be even described as maybe jihadan kabira, right? One of the greatest struggles because you're using... The arguments of the Qur'an, right? Mm. And Allah describes, you know, struggle with them, bihi, with it, which is the, referring to the Qur'an, jihad and kabira, a great struggle, a great striving, Ashram. right? So, and this is a great act of worship, and acts of worship can only be accepted if you have ikhlas, yeah. which means you're doing it for the sake of Allah, which means 
You're doing it because Allah is worthy of the act, because you love Allah, because you want His divine reward, and you want to shield yourself from His punishment. Yeah. That Having that in the forefront of my mind, in, that's what I would write to myself. Make sure you have that in place. Because I remember actually, I think it was around 2014 or 15, you know, I was running around. I was I was in Turkey and then after I come home for a day only, then I go to America and I come yeah. home for two days and I'm in Saudi. Yeah. It was madness. At one period, I don't remember the year, but it was just crazy. Yeah. I remember when I was in Chicago, some a brother, I don't even remember his name. I don't remember his name. But he was one of those serious brothers, right? He actually came from HT, right? And he was a an amazing brother because he was authentic. He didn't have any undeclared negative intentions. He would just tell me how it is. And he was like, Hamza, who the hell do you think you are, basically? <laughs> he, he was like the Al-Ghazali, right? Of, 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 of my moment, of my time, yeah? Yes. And when I was engaging in Chicago. Yes. He was a beautiful brother, but he was ripping into me. You're showing off, this is all show, who are you developing? And he really did it in a way that was so powerful. I can't even re-describe what he was basically saying. And the reason I mentioned he's from a HD background is a bit deliberate. It's not because, you know, it's to show that any brother from any background can benefit you. Good. Yeah? Yeah. That's very important to highlight. Yeah? So, yeah. so anyway, so he ripped into me and then I came back and I went to the IRA office at that time and I spoke to the operations manager at the time. He was Muhammad Ashrad and I broke down crying. And then I made a decision. I said, look, after this moment, if I'm going to travel and do stuff, I'm going to basically try and develop others, try and empower others. I'm not going to last forever. How many years do I have left? Right. You know, and that's what started a lot of the educational programs. And that was started the basis of my book, actually, because I developed a course called The Mirage of Atheism or The Divine Reality. And that became the basis of my book. Then my book has been translated into more than 10 languages, blah, 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 blah. Yes. So that moment, and, and that was because he tried to instill a sense of ikhlas in me, yeah? But before that, or even even maybe after, because it's a development, isn't exactly. it? We're, 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 it's trial and error. We're, yes. we're work in progress and we want to develop as further as we can. But from a class point of view, you know, I would say to myself, you know, all that great work that you're doing, you're going to do great work. You're just 22 years old. You're going to travel the world. You're going to write articles. You're going to engage in maybe debates. You're going to make an impact online and offline. You're going to manage organizations, global organizations, IERA, Sapiens. You need to realize that on the day of judgment, this is going to be absolutely zero if you don't do it for the sake of Allah. And you need to know what that means. It's not a spiritual slogan. It means that you're doing because Allah is worthy of the act. Of the act. You love him. Mm. It means that you want his divine reward and you want to shield yourself from the punishment. And, and it, there is a development process. That, you know, ikhlas is not like a button you press, right? And like I say, I have ikhlas. In actual fact, you're always going to be worried that you don't have ikhlas. So... There's a whole range of things that we need to do in our lives. One thing is, you know, understand that without ikhlas, you don't, there's no meaning. There's no spiritual reward. Yes. Understand that without ikhlas is actually the hellfire. Understand that with ikhlas is jannah, which is eternal bliss. And to develop it, you have to develop your heart because ikhlas is not in your liver. <laughs> it's not in your pancreas or your brain. Yes. It's in your heart. So how do you develop the heart? Well, you have to deal with the spiritual diseases. You have to engage in dhikr. You have to do tadabbur of the Quran. And we'll talk about this later. But those things are quite essential. And the other thing is you need to have good people around you. The scholars of Tazkiyat al-Nafs, they, they make a really key point. Yes, there are different ways in our tradition to deal with the diseases of the heart. Oh. But one key way is you need good people around you. Like you need good people around you. I was speaking to, I think, Muhammad, was it Muhammad Hijab? Who was I speaking to this morning? Hmm. I forgot actually, but I was speaking to someone. I said, I want someone, oh, brother Tariq Kurd, very good brother. Uh -huh. 
very honorable brother, right? And I said to him, I don't want friends to protect me from external people. I want friends to protect me from myself. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what I would advise myself as well. You know, have good friends around you, focus on your ikhlas and don't give up on the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Barakalafik, that's, uh, that's a br- brilliant answer. Um, you started a conversation recently about the state of YouTube and social media influencers and how they behave. Uh, here's a quote actually from uh, one tweet that you sent out uh, a couple of months back. Da'wah, in inverted commas, in the modern age has taken on an air of argumentation and code clinical rationality. Now you have at times also addressed on social media the clickbait refutation video culture that exists and maybe the personality faults and traits that you've just elucidated in your previous answer that come with this very abrasive approach to conveying Islam. What in your mind is a critical problem here? Well, the first thing to understand is this is not just an online thing. It's a, yeah. it's a pervasive thing. It right. exists in people's private lives and public lives and individual lives. It's not just the online world. The other thing to understand is that the algorithm is designed for this. It's mm. in, designed for engagement. It's designed to increase sales and likes and shares. So that doesn't help. So if you combine that with our current culture, our current disposition, our states of heart, which, you know, the ego, I want to be right and everyone want to be wrong. I sure. want to impose, I don't want to impose upon, I want to look good. I don't want to look bad to the to the degree that you give up the right way of being and mm. you even give up the truth, right? Yes. So that incumbent, that all of those things in combination actually create this stuff. And also we don't have, in my view, good role models. Right. And we don't have enough role models and we don't have, for example, people holding each other to account. I think we've lost that art to hold people to account in a way that is humble and compassionate and that you dedicate to someone's well-being. Because I think if we had more of those people around, we would have created an atmosphere online and offline that we could actually facilitate people's success. Yeah. And I think that's that's missing, which we could talk about, I guess. But I think the important thing here is that it's your state of heart. And we adopt the techniques and the mechanisms or the strategies of successful, maybe non-Muslims. And we think just because it works, it, mean, it means it's right. But we have to understand that we have a very principled tradition, right? We have the Quran and the Sunnah. We're not utilitarian. <laughs> We're not like, okay, what's the benefit or the great, the greatest success or happiness to the greatest amount of people. That's that's not our narrative. Yeah, in our tradition, we have maslaha and mafsada, benefits and harms for sure. But we're divine command theorists, if you like, ethicists. We believe in the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah's commands are in line with his nature, which means in this context, his names and attributes. Allah is al-bar, he is the source of all goodness. Allah is al-wudud, he is the loving, he is al-rahman, he is so on and so forth. He is al-alim, al-hakim, he is the knowing, he is the wise. Hmm. And his commands are derivative of who he is, his nature, his names and attributes. So by virtue of that, his commands are always good for us. And, and those commands also are the basis for principles. So we have to understand that we have principles. Just because it works, it doesn't mean it's true and it doesn't mean it's the right way of being. And I think we've become a little bit utilitarian when it comes to these things, which is a shame. And most of it is to do with the heart. A lot of our brothers, including myself, us in general, as a collective, we don't focus on the taskit nafs We don't focus on the internal aspects which are so important and necessary to actually have longevity in the dawah and to have true success and barakah, yeah? And this refutation culture, this debating, this 
don't get me wrong, there is a place for that. Sure. But I think we have to understand there's also the first steps that we need to take when it comes to this type of work. I'll give an example. Allah says in chapter 16, verse 125, call to the way of Allah with hikmah, with wisdom, with beautiful preaching, and debate with them in ways that are best. Wajadilhum, yeah? Debate with them, discuss with them in ways, or argue with them in ways that are best. The first thing to add here is the ulama discussed this verse, and the, the wow has many linguistic functions here. Yeah? It's not just a conjunction, it's not just the end or whatever. It has many linguistic functions, but without getting into the linguistics, you'll understand that this is indicating a barrier. So the default position is the hikmah, is the wisdom and good preaching, and then end debate with them in ways that are best. Meaning it's an instrument now. You use when necessary, in the right way, in the right context. It's not the default way of being in the da'wah, online or offline. So the problem with us initially is we think the default way is, it's we've turned the eye the other way around. We're saying, mm -hmm. no, the default way is debating. That's how you give da'wah, right? Yes. You debate. But it's not, it's the other way around. First is hikmah. And in that, there's so much to discuss because hikmah is the application of ilm. It's the application of knowledge. It's making knowledge relevant. So you have to have ilm as well at the same time. And you have to have the, the question, what is the context? Because to apply something and make it relevant, you have to understand the context. Yeah. So, and also, and instruct or, or preach to them in ways that are best or with beautiful preaching. This basically means... You're, you have rahmah, you have kindness, you have good adab and etiquette and compassion and so on and so forth. That's the default way. And this echoes another ayah, very famous ayah in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ta talks to Musa alayhi salam and says, go to Fir'aun, one of the worst creatures on earth, right? Mm -hmm. And speak to him layyinan, softly, kindly, mildly, right? Mm -hmm. Imam al-Qurtubi, the famous classical scholar who explained the Quran, basically said, and I'm summarizing, if, <laughs> if Musa alayhi salam had to speak to Pharaoh kindly, then it's more befitting. It's, we have to speak, you know, we, we have to emulate that way of being because at the end of the day, the people that we're speaking to is not going to be a Pharaoh, right? And you're not going to be a Moses. You're not going to be a Musa. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean we're always soft, kind and compassionate. Of yeah. course not. Because when the context changes, sometimes you have to be assertive and stronger and dominant and courageous. But this is virtue ethics. When the context changes, then you you use the Quran and Sunnah and you apply it to certain scenarios. But the default position is always kindness, mercy, even when it comes to debating. So I, I pick three scholars for you, different theological backgrounds. Right. Jamakshari, the famous grammarian, Ibn Kathir, uh, Imam al-Nasafi. Yeah? So Ibn Kathir, Jamakshari, and Imam al-Nasafi, they say the same thing. Essentially, when you debate with them, if you're going to decide to debate, you debate with them with gentleness, kindness, no gruffness, no harshness, compassion. You try to, you know, liberate their hearts. That's the default position when you decide to debate. Now, we don't do that anymore. The default position now has become not hikmah and good preaching. It's become <laughs> debating, which is wrong. And when we debate, we don't do the default position when you decide to debate, which is the default position will be to do it with no gruffness, no harshness, kindness, compassion. We actually do it with a sense of, you know, arrogance or excessive dominance. Yeah. And I think this is all veiling a pathology that we have. It could be a spiritual pathology, it could be a social one, it could be psychodynamic. But I am a true believer that true masculinity, true rujula in the Islamic tradition mm. is actually being able to hold down your ego, right? Is Yes, there are times you need to be assertive. 
but at the right time. There, there's times to be, you know, dominant at the right time. But if that is your default state, then that's just veiling a pathology. There's something going wrong with you because you're not following the Quran and the Sunnah. You're not able to bench press your ego. <laughs> yeah. Right? Do you see my yeah, point? You, so these are important things. So when it comes to debating, so in summary, the default position of Dawah is hikmah and that entails knowledge and so on and so forth, is good preaching which entails compassion and so on and so forth. And if you decide to debate, and debating here is not the default position, it's an instrument that you use in the right way at the right time. So when you decide to do it, the default position when you decide to debate is no gruffness, no harshness, gentleness, kindness, and so on and so forth. If that's going to change, it has to be justified because you've assessed the context, you've assessed the maslaha, the benefit, the mafsada and the harms, and you've applied the knowledge of Islam onto that context. And like, okay, we now here we need to be a little bit more assertive. In general, the dawah is not that. We've turned it upside down. So the default position is not hikmah, wisdom, and, and good preaching. It's actually debating. And the default position when we debate is not kindness, it's actually harshness. And, and what is this downtime? And you mentioned the algorithm prefers the bombastic, the uh, the showman style on, on YouTube. Um, are these debaters really applying Western marketing techniques or is there something more deeper going on there? Well, it's a combination. So mm. look, there's nothing wrong with applying techniques and marketing technology, if you like, mm. if it works to the degree that it's in line with Islamic principles. Right. But we can't be naive. Yes. I know sometimes we think, hey, technology, whether it's software or hardware, yeah. is intrinsically amoral. I disagree with that, actually. Really? Yeah, it, to a degree, because we can't be naive. We have to appreciate that with technology, whether it's a marketing technique or a physical thing, it's, it's going to have its own philosophy and culture, right? So, for example, TikTok. In abstraction, TikTok, right? 10-second videos, 20-second videos, no problem. What's, what's moral about that or what's immoral about that? It's amoral. You yes. could use it for good or bad. No, because what happens functionally and in practice when you develop it and you, and you, and you implement it into the real world, then what, what, what culture comes with that? Right. Loss of attention span, not having nuanced arguments, sloganeering. Do you see my point? So a culture comes with it. A culture comes with it. A philosophy comes with it. And even in operational sense, like I was a, uh, project and program consultant back mm. in the day mm. and if you implement a certain system yes. then you're relying on the system right now from a spiritual perspective maybe that could be diminishing of your tawakkal right because you now you start to give it intrinsic value you give the means you confuse the means with the creator of the means right right this is actually could be a formal shirk yes i know that's extending it a bit but i'm just trying to use hyperbody just to bring the point home yeah so when it comes to marketing techniques if they're focused on the individual then what happens you 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 and in the context of a kind of secular, liberal, narcissistic age that we live in, it's just going to basically highlight that aspect, which is blameworthy in the Islamic tradition. Sure. We're not supposed to focus on ourselves. That's not prophetic masculinity, for example, to focus just on me. You know, when someone wanted to see the Prophet they would ask, where is Muhammad? Wasallam. What does that mean? It means he didn't make himself distinct from the Sahaba, right? Yes. You know, he built his own masjid. He had marks on his forehead when he was praying. If he was invited in Shema'il Tirmidhi, it narrates that if he was invited to eat rancid fat, he would go to that house. Mm. You know, he would say, oh, what a wonderful curry vinegar is. He would dip his bread in vinegar. If for months, he'd be on Aswadain, the two black things, right? Water, because it was dirty, right? And, and, and dates. 
you know, he would make dua about being the, you know, you know, make me of the humble. So, you know, there was one Arab or one Bedouin, he was shaking when he came to him. And I think he put his hand on his shoulder saying, you know, basically, don't worry. I, I, I come from a, an Arab woman who used to eat jerked meat, meaning I'm, you know, I'm human. So it emphasizes on the, the antithesis of humility. So ego, we have this sense of egoism or egocentrism as well. So m those marketing techniques in abstraction, they, they're amoral, but with them, they could bring a certain culture and philosophy. And that's why we have to use mitigation strategies in our dawah to actually ensure that that doesn't happen. Is, does that make, is that clear? It, it, absolutely clear. I mean, Western society, of course, it concentrates and focuses on the individual and neoliberalism is all about the self. Um, primacy of the self. And the primacy of the self, right? But how much of that is, you know, we can, we can blame the West and we can blame uh, modern technology and modern society. I mean, I, I was interested when I read the introduction to Ehia by Imam Ghazali and his first chapter, where he talks about many of those traits that uh, people of his time, the debaters and the philosophers had adopted. Um, he came to the conclusion that there is an egocentric society that's developed where he lives. And he set out to deal with that and to address some of the concepts, some of the values and ideas of Islam that, um, uh, that work against the self and work against the individual. Uh, I've got a great quote here, actually, which I uh, had bookmarked when I read through his first chapter. So it's, it's a lengthy quote, but I'll quote a little bit of it. As long as prestige requires a following, then nothing attracts a follower better than bigotry. Nothing attracts a following better than bigotry, cursing and slandering opponents. They have adopted fanaticism as their rule of conduct and their method of approach and call it a defense of religion and protection for all Muslims, even though it leads to nothing but destruction of the people. Now, that could easily be said about some of the uh, enthusiastic, let's call them enthusiastic YouTubers that we find around us. And I suppose my question is that, is it within, is there something within the way Muslims can adopt, regardless of space and time, can adopt the Islamic way of thinking that turns them into these ecocentric selves? Mm. So, yes, I, this is not a Western phenomenon. Yeah. Obviously, liberalism, because of its primacy of the self, secularism, which is like the removal of the sacred, that you essentially become sacred. Yeah. Even postmodernism is like that, that you are essentially God, you decide, right? Because of these worldviews and ideologies, it facilitates that kind of narcissism, right? And this egocentrism and this egoism more. Mm. Like, mm. I think one... He's a Korean-born German philosopher. I keep on forgetting his name, and I do apologize for mispronouncing it. His name is Byung Han Chul, I think. He wrote, it sounds right. Yeah, he, he wrote a book on the agony of Eros. He makes a really good point. He says, because of our, the narcissistic age that we live in, and this is because maybe secularism and neoliberalism and whatever the case may be, we have now removed the other. Hmm. And we have basically become narcissistic. And we don't know how to love anymore mm. because in order to truly love, you have to love the other, sure. right? Now, in order to love the other, you have to know who the other is, but we've moved them in that in our social and personal space yeah. because it's all about you now. So love in a kind of narcissist, in the, in the narcissistic age that we live in today is basically loving yourself because you project you onto the other. Mm. So th they're not themselves individually anymore. It's just you and you just end up loving yourself. Yeah. And that's, I think, 
an insight to what's happening in today's age. I know that was about love, but generally speaking, it's like a symptom of what's going on in the world, right? So the ideologies have an impact, but this is a human problem. It transcends ideology. It transcends time and space. This is why the ulama throughout the ages wrote books on Teskutu Nafs, right? Ibn Taymiyyah, right? Who's, you know, one would argue, he was, was he about? He doesn't speak about these things. Of course he does. His student was known as the heart surgeon, the spiritual heart surgeon. Mm. Al-Ghazali wrote about this. Yes. Right? May Allah have mercy on all of them. So Amen. throughout the ages, you had ulama talking about Teskutu Nafs. And I think what has happened because of the kind of, It's, it's not a binary thing, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, math is easy to understand, right? It's for the people who want security. One plus one is equal to two. You're not going to go wrong, right? But when it comes to things like Teskiyotun Nafs, it's hard to measure, right? And it's hard to quantify. It's more qualitative. Yes. And I think because generally speaking, human beings have that sense of, you know, I want certainty. It's actually a psychological thing, right? Because even in social psychology, what creates the social norm or, or an aspect of social influence and conformity is our need to feel certain. And when it comes to knowledge, when it's one plus one is equal to two, that's certain, right? Mm. But if it's like, you know, there's grades of, you know, the level of your spirituality and you've got an element of ego, but you can't really see it, right? It's, 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 not, it's not like maths, yeah? It's not like fiqh. How to do wudu, easy. You just, you wash your hands, you wash your arms, you wash your face. These are easy things to understand. But Teskiyotun Nafs is a little bit different, right? It's qualitative, it's subjective, it's even phenomenological, it's first-person experience. And it's hard because naturally the human beings don't like to be picked apart, right? Mm. So from that perspective, we, I think, and this is just my hunch, just my intuitive kind of response here. I think we've, we've not focused on that, especially in this time. And throughout the ages, we need a refocus on it and we need a reminder that one of the key aspects of Islam is actually dealing with the spiritual diseases of the heart. And there's key spiritual diseases. The ulama actually try to codify codify this, if you like, or, or at least quantify it to a certain degree. You have something called hasad, which is blameworthy jealousy. Yes. You have kibr, which is arrogance. And there's a definition for that. There is real ostentation. There is ujub, self-amazement. Mm. So all of those things... Um, uh, have solutions in our tradition yeah? yes. And from the Quran And the, the way of the scholars And the way of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam That needs to be revived And that's not in our public discourse I mean how many Of those talks do you find these days Because people would think Oh it's like this Fringe group Sectarian group Known as the kind of Extreme Sufis That talk about this yes. Which is ridiculous Because this is the tradition This is well known from uh, Even the Hanbalites The Athri tradition The Ashaira The Maturidis Even the Mutazilites this is part of the Islamic discourse, right? Because Allah says, you're not going to be safe on the day of judgment unless you come to Allah with qalbin salim, with a, with a sound heart. Mm. You know, the one who purifies his soul succeeds. This mm. is part of the Quranic discourse. Of course, Hamza, many young Muslims, in particular young men, are influenced by a host of positions that are generally, I don't know, influenced by Western society. But there is a response to feminism in the West that extenuates the macho man who is not disturbed by the traits possessed by the so-called modern new man. How do we navigate this red pill response to women's liberation? I'm a true believer of not reacting at all. Hmm. And I think that's happened, especially in the online world, that we basically think 
if feminism is un-Islamic and wrong, yes. therefore its opposite extreme is right. This is a very immature, naive way of being. Right. Don't get me wrong, that reaction, that extreme reaction, there may be an element of truth, truth in it and you may be able to use it, but that's not the correct way of being. As a Muslim, we say, okay, what is this ism or this worldview or set of ideas? Or what is this domain of knowledge or this domain that we're trying to address? What does Islam have to say? Yes. Because we have to ask ourselves a question and we don't usually ask ourselves this question. I haven't heard it from many people, which is, what does Allah want from us, from me in this particular context? Meaning, not just the halal and the haram, because many things could be halal, but there are greater halals, right? What is closer to the pleasure of Allah? That's what we should be asking ourselves. And even when it comes to things like ideological discourse, dealing with ideas and so on and so forth, ask yourself the question, we should ask the question, what is more pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Is it going to the opposite extreme and adopting, I don't know, a red pill movement? No, with all due respect, not at all. We need to, be, we need to reclaim the narrative and control the narrative. Yes. It doesn't mean we agree with feminism. Of course we don't. But react to it appropriately, meaning respond to it. Don't react, respond to it in light of the divine commands and the teachings of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then you will get a balanced approach and I'll tell you why that's very important because now we have almost two camps online red mm. pill and feminism yes well we're neither it's like this whole th framing of left wing and right wing we're neither Islam transcends this yeah mm. and this is the thing that we need to be speaking about let's refer to what the tradition says what Islam says what the scholars say what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said and what I mean by that is, you know, classical orthodoxy. What does it say? I'm not saying you have to be apologetic. Of course not. But don't be reactionary. Don't adopt the extreme thinking it's all halal because it's against your enemy, your ideological enemy. This, yes. is, a, this is an immature way of being. So we need to revive the question. What does Allah want from us in this particular context? And then we'll get, we have, we have guidance, right? We have all the solutions. And another thing I want to add to to the, to the whole issue of masculinity It's very important that we have role models And so it's very important that we You know, both sides The feminists, the liberals Those secular inclined Those, I don't know, the moderates you, I don't like these labels generally speaking But they say, oh look The Prophet was compassionate And he was kind And he had haya, right? Like a virgin bride This is all correct But don't be reductionist Don't reduce the Prophet wasallam Just to these traits why haven't you mentioned the fact that he was so courageous? He was in the front of the battle. He was fierce in battle. He was assertive. He was brave. Why don't you mention some of these things? Why don't you mention the fact that, you know, he had, you know, a, a strength. He was very strong, mm. right? Physically and also strong from the point of view in his intimate affairs, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Why are these not highlighted? And this, there is a problem here is because many people who engage with the character of the Prophet ﷺ, they do so through what? A certain lens, mm. an ideological lens. Right. They may be liberals, they may be quasi-liberals, they may be secularists, they may be postmodernists, they may be, I don't know, whatever. And they use that as a lens to see the life of the Prophet ﷺ. I'm a true believer in trying to remove that baggage and allowing the prophetic character to speak for itself. And once you do, you would see haya, you would see compassion, you would see forgiveness, you would see humility, but you, you would also see courage and strength and assertiveness and maybe a sense of dominance in the right way, right? So allow the prophetic character to speak for itself and the narratives that are coming across 
are what you would call narratives that are not in line with the holistic picture of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Let's use Khadija as a case study, right? Yes. <laughs> Khadija is like you know she's become Rajallahu anha, the kind of I don't know the the beacon or the bastion of the kind of you know modern is Muslim movement or feminist movement, and she's been distorted, frankly. Khadija was you know a businesswoman, and she went straight to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and asked for his hand. Now. Let's assume that's true. It's not true, but let's assume it's true. They use that. As, they use that exception because that's not the default position for Muslim women, right? Mm. They because the default position as well is a sense of it, the primary goal, notwithstanding other things that we have to do in civil society in the Islamic context. The mm. primary goal or the highest virtue is for a woman to be a mother and a wife. Yeah, and that is like. Something that is adored, something that is valued, right? The basis of the family, the basis of society, is the woman in the Islamic tradition. Yeah? Yes, that's the primary narrative we should be pushing. But what we've done, we've taken this exception and we've made it the norm. Mm. Why? Because you have almost subconscious ideological baggage, or you want to please the dominant ideological discourse, which is liberalism, right? And that's a big problem, and we need to be conscious of that. Yeah. And so when it comes to Khadija radiallahu anha, she used a third party mm. to ask for the hand of the Prophet And when she got married, she took a step back. There was a sense of hiddenness, right? And her role was one of the greatest roles in Islam anyway, because she actually was the first Muslim, technically. And mm. she consoled the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that intimate union, that deep love that they had, facilitate what we have today. You know, the Prophet described her love as nourishing. He mm. said... Her love nourished me. I mean, that is the most wonderful way of describing someone's love, right? So they use the Khadija story, a misinterpretation of the Khadija radiallahu anha story as uh, the, 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 the rule, but really it's an exception. And even the way they understand the exception is actually misunderstood as well. And that is because of ideological framing and baggage. And we just need to be authentic about that. There are two terms that uh, feminists use to diagnose power relationships in society. I want your view on the utility of these terms. Is there a place within Muslim discourse to use the terms misogyny and patriarchy? Look, words are important because they allow you to make distinctions. On a yeah. side note, I think one of the beauties of the Quran is it's in Arabic, right? Yes. And I think there is a massive wisdom an immense wisdom behind the Quran being in Arabic because the Arabic is such a rich language that it allows you to make distinctions because language allows you to make distinctions. For example, how many words in love for, in English? Two, three? Some of them are borrowed from the French anyway, yeah? Yes. So in Arabic, I think you have like what? At least over what? I don't know. There's over 10, over 20, right? And each description of love will give you a certain distinction, right? You have ishq, for example, which is a possessive type of love. So mm. we know what type of love it is. That language allows us to make a distinction. Yes. So language is so important to make distinctions. However, words are also vehicles to meaning. And also words also carry ideological baggage. So when it comes to misogyny and patriarchy, you have to be careful because who are you talking to? If I'm talking to a feminist, and I'm saying that's misogyny, then what am I doing here? I'm actually maybe adopting her assumptions and her worldview. So I'm not really engaging her with her in the right way because I don't carry those assumptions. Do you see? So I think it's very important, depending on what audience we talk to, that we have to unpack those terms. But as a base, as a basic primary starting point, if you think 
patriarchy is the system of governance or the system of social life or the system of a family where the father or the eldest male is the one that takes care of the family and the one that is the protector and maintainer, absolutely Islam is a patriarchy, if you define it that way, yeah? Mm. But if you define patriarchy as a form of injustice and gender arrogance, no, that's not Islam. Right. So it depends. Words carry ideological baggage and the vehicles to meaning. So sometimes you have to unpack that depending who your audience is. But there's nothing wrong with saying, yes, of course, Islam has an amazing complementarian system. Islam has given the role of the husband, for example, as to use as an example, to you know, to have this kind of authority and to have this, um, they are the protectors and maintainers of the women folk. Yeah. That's a very important thing. And that is, and with all due respect, these are necessary hierarchies in order to establish the moral optimization, social optimization and individual well-being of everyone within society. And we're not going to get lessons from the liberals or the secularists or the postmodernists with all due respect, the mm. divorce rates, the social def uh, fragmentation and, and decay. Um, they don't even know how to define a male and a female. They've got all these issues going on. With all due respect, you, you're in no position to give us any moral lessons on this issue. Uh, these, are, these are established religious hierarchies coming from Allah and the Prophet ﷺ that have benefited us tremendously and they continue to do so. That's why people are, are going to the Muslim mode. Right, because you know they want that sense of traditional family, right? And that's you know, and, and we know all the problems in the in the West at the moment concerning these things. So, when it comes to misogyny, if it's a prejudice or a bias or a dislike or a hatred for women, of course that's haram mm. for sure. This is not part of our tradition. We need to honor our women. We need to protect our women. We need to love and care for our women. We need to ensure. Economically, socially, intellectually, emotionally, physically, that they are they have a sense of well-being. This is part of the responsibility of the state, of the husband, of the father. So we honor our women, right? We would start a war for one woman, right? Mm. This is how much we honor them. And we see this in law, we see them see this in the social structures of, of our society. So do we have a dislike and a hatred for women or prejudice against them? Of course not. So we're not misogynistic from that perspective. However, when the liberals or the postmodernists or the Marxists, whoever they are, they point the finger at Islam and say, you're misogynist, they're, they're not saying you're misogynist that you hate women. They're saying because you're not in line with our notions of equality. You're not in line with our notions of rights. And we have to be very careful about that, right? Because, right? for example, this whole abortion debate. Yes. Notwithstanding the kind of jurisprudential nuances and the virtual ethics and the context as you know, the prima facie reading and the initial premise and the position is that abortion is haram. Khalas. No one's going to disagree with that, yeah? Mm. So we're not applying the law in certain contexts here. We're saying, what is the law? Mm. Abortion is haram. It's murder. Some people say this is misogyny, right? Because it's her body, her choice. So what is the assumption here? The assumption is that number one, it's her body and it's her choice. And number one, a woman has that right. But with all due respect, in the Islamic discourse, we don't adopt your false philosophical assumption, which is we own ourselves. We don't own ourselves, bro. Who owns us? Allah. This is the key aspect of divine creative agency. This is the key aspect of the oneness, the tawheed of rububiyah, meaning Allah is the master, the owner, the maintainer of everything that exists. So if Allah owns me, he has the right to tell me what to do with my body. Yes. So the discourse shifts, doesn't it? 
And this is an aqidah issue. But what happens generally speaking with, you know, some scholars or imams or women folk or du'at, they don't understand these, these very fundamental issues. And they just jump into the kind of, I don't know, uh, the epistemological metaphysical lizard hole thinking it's the cave of Hera. Because <laughs> they adopt liberal or postmodern um, uh, false assumptions and, and, you know, epistemic frames of reference. Yeah. And we need to be careful with that. So I know this is a long answer to a short question, but the thing is we have to be careful in the words that we use and unpack them to our audiences in a, in a particular way. So I wouldn't use, for example, you know, misogyny with a, to, to, with a feminist, for example, unpack exactly what our key principles are. And this is important as a wider discussion as well, understanding Islam on a very deep fundamental level. Take the whole LGBTQ plus issue, right? Yeah. So the whole issue about, oh, why do you think homosexuality is, is a crime against God and it's a sin? You're, you're a bigot. You hate, right? And we, we just lap that in and we have no defense. We have to turn the table and say, look, we're going to respect you. If you're a human being, if you're my next door neighbor, I'll give you CPR if you have a heart attack. I'll give mm. you milk if you need milk. If your child needs babysitting, I'll babysit your child, yeah? Mm. So we have this sense of taking care of people. The Prophet had a mushrik in his house and fed him, right? You know, the mm. famous story that he fed him seven bowls of milk. So we have this sense of coexistence and, 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 dig, and helping people and taking care of people. And, and our engagement is one of dawah as well. We, we're committed to the goodness and guidance. That's mm. the default position of any human being. Yeah. Now, the LGBTQ narrative, we need to reframe it and say, hold on a second, with all due respect, you have false assumptions and you're assuming that your kind of liberal ethic is actually universal. No, it's not universal. And we saw this with the whole Qatar World Cup debate, right? Mm. The reason it's not universal because you assume you have self-ownership yes. and you assume a utilitarian ethic. Islam doesn't assume those things. We have the correct assumptions. We know Allah owns us. And we know the right way in terms of our frame of reference for ethics is divine commands. It's not based on a kind of liberal uh, utilitarianism, right? Yeah. When we explain that they have those assumptions and those assumptions require warrant, they require justification, then you put them in the back foot. And you, you have to make them realize that this is not universal. And we have a certain aqidah. This doesn't mean you have to now be aggressive to them or express hate to them, we're in, especially in our context as minorities, we're here to engage positively. We're dedicated to your guidance and your goodness. That's why we're telling you, you have false philosophical and moral assumptions. Don't assume they are universal. We have the correct assumption, which is Allah owns us. Oh, you don't know? Let me show you that Allah exists. Let me show you why the Quran is true. So you bring it back to a Dawah discourse. Mm. And you also show them that the, the, the way to live your life is, is by obeying God's commands. That's what a Muslim is. You surrender to God's commands. Oh, but I don't believe in that. Okay, let me show you why you should. So that changes the discourse from discussing these kind of, you know, moral issues to the foundation. And they may say, okay, well, if that's true, that we have assumptions, you have assumptions, then don't force it on us. Okay, well, thank you. Hmm. Stop forcing it down our throats as well. Right? That's what's happening at, at schools, right? And that's why there's an explosion of people having gender dysphoria now because, you know, we saw this, even the Telegraph wrote about this and, and I think the Guardian. So... The reason I mentioned this in a very quick way is to show that once you understand your aqidah and the, and the key uh, provable assumptions in our tradition, then we could relate to people in a way that's intellectual and compassionate and wise and show them, hold on a second, you don't have universal moral principles here um, and you can't force this down our throats, you know? Yeah, I want, I want to address something uh, contemporary now. Um, can I ask you about Andrew Tate? Um, <laughs> 
Now, I've been very cautious to engage with this discussion on social media because, of course, there's the normal, as you said, the left-right discussions and the very extreme discussions. And but but I think it's you know it it is worth uh, when we think about the Muslim man and we think about young Muslim men in particular. It's worth trying to dissect the criticisms of Andrew Andrew Tate and and dissect some of the attitudes that that exist towards Andrew Tate. So let's let's think about and I would I would like your thoughtful reflections on it. So I would like to understand okay how should we view his conversion? Is it a market employer? Some say many on the left argue that uh, it's a it's it's part of the general marketing strategy of Andrew Tate. You know he's going to adopt any position in order to build an audience and build a brand. Um, I would like you to address his type of masculinity or at least. Again, I don't. I'm not into Andrew Tate. I'm probably the wrong demographic here. <laughs> you know, I don't. I've never heard. I never heard of Andrew Tate until he became a phenomenon. You know, a few months back here in the West. But he does uh, portray a certain type of masculinity, and on occasion, he has coupled that with an Islamic masculinity. He said, "Well, you know, this is the close Islam." Even before he became Muslim, by the way, Islam is the closest to what I understand to be. A male-female relationship, or the type of relationship he he endorses. Um, also, his past and present activities. You know how, of course, he's. You know, we don't know the truth of of what's uh, what's happened, but he's on. He he probably will stand trial. He's he stand accused of of some horrendous crimes, right? Yes. Um, so I I want you, I, I suppose, to unpack how a Muslim. Who has these filters in place that you talk about? Yes. You know of Islam and and you know who doesn't who is not easily moved by the left right debates. How should we view the entire discussion about Andrew Tate? Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing to understand is that when someone becomes Muslim, you start assuming it's a marketing play. Then the problem is you, not them. That's one hundred percent. This is okay. not part of a tradition. You probably have nifaq, frankly. Let's just call it a spade a spade. If you're going to say someone became Muslim and you, you're judging because of a marketing ploy, what about you? Maybe you, you've remained Muslim because of a marketing ploy. Yeah. Maybe it just makes you feel happy or whatever. God knows. So we could just we could just turn the tables and say, well, maybe you remain a Muslim because you, you feel empowered as a minority because you can use the minority card. Maybe we could do that to them. Yeah. I mean, it's a ridiculous, sick ploy. It's sick. It's, it's spiritually sick. You know, we should be happy that someone... Wallahi, you know in Aqidah Tahawiyah, if you study, and this is again Aqidah, bring it back to Allah, yeah? Mm. I'm not, and I'm not talking about Aqidah in a sectarian sense. Yes. That's in a true Allah-centric sense. If you find someone dead in sajda, and they look like a non-Muslim, and it was like an Islamic state or an environment, you bury them as a Muslim because they died looking like as if they died as a Muslim. SubhanAllah. Do you see my point? This is a basic Aqidah issue. You would want people even to even say it. Maybe you, you meant... Like you had an atom's weight of iman, just say it, and at least I could make du'a for you. Like these people are sick; they're spiritually <laughs> sick. There's nothing else to say. I'm not going to discuss it, and they yeah. probably have nifaq. May Allah protect us and them. Yeah, I mean that's the first thing. The second thing is just an interesting side point. My parents, my mom calls me Andrew. Not many people know that. Yeah. <laughs> that's why sometimes I smile because they've been calling me Andrew for decades. All yeah, right. especially my brother. Not Andrew. because not because of Andrew Tate. No, of course what? not. Yeah, because Andreas okay. is the Greek version of Andrew. Right. Yeah, so. When I was when I was brought up, they called, my mom calls me Andrew sometimes. My sister calls me Andrew. Right? Yes. So I just thought I thought I just saw that in the mix. Sure. By the way, it means manly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it comes from the Greek word andras. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, so that's the first point. The second point to understand is: look, Andrew's a Muslim. Yeah. And so he has rights. 
and we have to honor him and we have to we have to protect his honor mm. the first thing to understand is the blameworthy business activities that he engaged with with regards to the women folk etc he stopped this i think a year before he became muslim mm. also with his casino business that he made a lot of money from he i think because of his islamic now disposition and he's becoming a muslim he has been in the process of stopping it but there's been some logistical and other issues that has taken some time mm. so this is a very good sign mm. right so not many people talk about, I'm saying this defending because not people not many people have spoken about this this is an right. important thing yeah. yes he may have to stand trial if he's done anything wrong he has to be held to account for sure but that's a different issue people now had as a saying just because he's representing something of what some liberal muslims call the akhrai and they have now a leftist perspective they just want to just demonize him to the degree that is unjust sure. and that's why i'm mentioning these things yeah yes the the other point to understand is some of the things that andrew tate says are fine a man has to protect his women take care of his women right women have to be chaste and the other things that i've and i mean i don't follow him but you know to like uh, an obsessive degree but i do see some of his stuff and you know protect your women take care of your women provide for your women be a family man marriage is extremely important be courageous be assertive these are the things that our muslim youth have been waiting to come out of the lips of our imams and scholars of so called duaat and so called academics they haven't been saying those things which are prophetic mm. so don't start pointing the finger at andrew when you're the problem you have reduced the prophet sallam to a liberal na'udhu billah you have reduced the prophet sallam to a postmodernist or you've reduced the prophet sallam to this weak character yes as i said earlier allow the prophetic character to represent itself mm. don't frame it from your from your ideological perspective whether it's left right up down middle whatever yeah mm. just allow it to speak for itself so the reason andrew has become popular amongst muslim youth is not he was popular amongst muslim youth before he became muslim exactly is because he's mentioning certain things that they need to hear which is you're a man take care of your women have masculinity traditional family be assertive be courageous be dominant in certain areas that you need to be dominant in mm -hmm. have a healthy competition and i was mentioning this to um my children i admire the relationship he has with his brother no one talks about this like really no one has actually look go to an average asian muslim household yes maybe not now but the uncles there's dispute about inheritance they're not talking to each other for the six months this is a is this a common thing i know i'm yes. married into the asian community i know people brothers don't talk to each other they don't have that relationship look at andrew and his brother notwithstanding your hate for them notwithstanding maybe you think they have blame worthy activities whatever the case may be just look at the relationship he's like when i wake up in the morning or when i wake up and my brother's alive i'm happy if my brother pass away it would destroy me they're so close they have this proper brotherhood right which we should like envy in a positive way not that we want to remove it from them that we want to emulate that's a very deep loving relationship that they have right so why is no one spoken about those good things as well right mm -hmm. now so he has said good things mm -hmm. however and as a muslim we need to understand this yes he's been muslim a new muslim for a few months but he's very intelligent he's not a young kid he's 36 years old he's not you know someone who doesn't know what's right and wrong he knows he uses haram a lot so he knows the basics and some of the stuff that has come out on his social media and some of the things that he's been that he has said on youtube or other platforms they're definitely blameworthy some of them could be even be seen as arrogant which is not islamic 
it's the antithesis to the prophetic character. Some of the things can be seen as not in line with Islamic ethics. There's a sense of haughtiness. There's a sense of gender arrogance, avid materialism, which is not part of our tradition. Yeah. Excessive individualism. So we have to call these things out for sure. So I'm not saying, I'm not like, you know, someone who is like, you know, uh, an Andrew Tate fan, but I'm, I'm trying to assess it from the point of view of the maslaha and masada as well, the mm. benefits and the harms. M millions potentially of Muslim youth are following him. If you demonize him excessively and unjustly, then what message are you sending to this Muslim youth? You need to be able to give them the tools to assess, okay, this is good about him and we should emphasize that. And this is what's wrong. And we make dua that he improves. And I actually believe, this is my hunch. I see it in his eyes, right? Maybe it's because I've led organizations before and I've led du'at and, you know, through experience, you get a, a pattern mm -hmm. of human behavior. I actually think that he's very genuine. And you see this in the discourse in his, in his personal individual interactions that he has with people. They seem as very kind, very humble. Because sometimes people have a public personality and a, and, a, and a kind of default individual outside of the public light personality. And I see it in his eyes and I see a sense of genuineness. And I do believe... If he were to maybe be a bit quiet, study the deen, he could be a great da'i, bro. He could be great at sharing Islam. So there are issues, for sure. They're obvious. But to now demonize him completely, I think is unjust. It's not befitting of a Muslim to do that. There are some praiseworthy traits, his eloquence, his, his commitment to courage and taking care of women and, you know, sticking up to what he believies in. And, you know, he also could fight. He's strong. He's articulate, um, he's assertive, he's brotherly, he believes in the family values and the traditional family values. These things are praiseworthy, not blameworthy. But also, we shouldn't just, you know, think he's an angel, he's not. Some of the things that he said is haughty, arrogant, avid materialism, excessive individualism, and so on and so forth. And those, and he, he should be held to account and he should have good people around him that are actually giving him that tarbiyah and so on and so forth. So if, so if you were to counsel Andrew Tate, if he was to ask you, Hamza, for advice, what would you say to him? I would say to him, I would, I would, I would tell him to have a break. Yeah. Like if you look at one of the right wing, uh, I think he was Dutch politician. He was, he was a right wing politician. Joram van Claveren. Yeah. Yes. When he became Muslim, he then became quiet. Yes. I think he studied the deen for a bit and now he's making it a tremendous impact. Yes. I would give similar advice to Andrew Tate. Right. Focus on who Allah is and how to relate to him. And... Look at all of your life through the lenses of Allah's pleasure. Mm. And don't despair of Allah's mercy. The doors of, of, of tawbah, of repentance are always open. Yes. You know, seek his forgiveness. Have the right people around you and just reframe your life. And once he does that and he stays silent for a while, then he can come back onto the scene as an optimized version of himself. Mm. And that would be my advice. And I'll be like, I'm, I'll be dedicated to your well-being and I'll be committed to your well-being. Let's, I'll help you in the process Or we have other people to help you in the process And, yeah. I, and I do think there are people around him yeah. but I think he's probably finding it hard To remove himself from that kind of public lifestyle And it, it's, it's a fitna You know, if someone becomes a Muslim Of course they need to have a clean sheet And one needs to think good of Muslims where, Whoever they are, right? Whether they're, a, you know, whether they're Andrew Tate Or whether they're a feminist Or you know, a self-described postmodernist We have to have, you know, we have to have a, a good we have to develop good thoughts about Muslims. However, in our initial discussion, you talked about some of the very problematic traits that many young Muslim men adopt. And these traits are 
they've they've overcompensated as a result of feminism and they've developed these let's call them red pill again a very problematic term but these red pill ideals and and uh, it goes beyond uh, what islam lays down and beyond certainly beyond the prophetic way yes. a man should be um many young people whether muslims or not muslims who look at andrew tate look at the package and uh, people like andrew tate develop these egotistical traits and and maybe you know those traits are what you're trying to combat you know yes. your 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 whole discussion at the very beginning was about like you know i i wouldn't want my son for example to to have the traits uh at least the, the over macho traits that i think you know are very harmful to the individual character right yes so how do we balance that i mean you did criticize you have criticized you know you've mentioned some critical points on tate but there is a role model problem here and many young muslims may take what you've said and imply from that that you're you're singing the virtues of andrew no, tate no not at all I, I i personally feel no one no one should look up to andrew tate right. as a as a complete package okay you should follow the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But in saying that, we have this is a symptom of a cause. Right. Where are our scholars, preachers, teachers, academics in the discourse? Mm. This righteous brigade that all of a sudden they've become lions against Andrew Tate. Yes. Where, where, where is this lying attitude when it comes to liberalism, postmodernism, the uh, you know the feminization of of the Muslim man of men for the past thirty or forty years? Yeah. Where are you against postmodern trends? These these great evils, yeah, even creedal uh, issues. Where where's your voice? Where's your voice? Mm. Like with all due respect, you judge a man by what he doesn't say. Sometimes, right? Right. I mean, in general, you shouldn't judge anyone in yes. kind of ontological sense because Allah yeah. is the greatest judge. But from the apparent, you judge them from what they don't say. You've been quiet on liberalism. You've been quiet on feminism. You've actually made the exception the rule. You've been quiet on. Key prophetic aspects of masculinity like courage, assertiveness, being able to fight for God's sake, yes. protecting our women folk, and so on and so forth. You've been quiet on all of these things, and Andrew Tate comes along, now you've become a lion. Shut your mouth. Sorry, that's what they deserve to say. Yeah. You need to focus on what's in your heart. There's something wrong with you. What's happened to you? Yeah. Look, I don't want my son to emulate Andrew Tate, but do I want my son to emulate his eloquence? Yes. Do I want my son to emulate his articulation? Yes. Do I want my son to emulate that he would be a good kickboxer? Absolutely. Do I want my son to emulate that he is assertive and dominant in the business sphere, that he's able to take care of his wife or wives? Absolutely. Mm. So these things are, are praiseworthy. Look, we can't counsel these people. We can de help develop them and give people the tools to understand what is good and what is bad. But mm. I am a strong believer of enrolling, not controlling. Yeah. Enroll people in your behavior. The person wanted the Sahaba to shave their heads. Mm. They didn't shave their heads. And we know the context and the story. Mm. He went to his wife, right? Um Salama. Yes. May Allah, may Allah uh, be pleased with I her. Mean. She said, shave your head. He shaved his head. What happened? They all shaved We them. need role models. Now, some people argue, no. You know, people should seek role models, but we don't live in that world. We need to become role models. And that doesn't mean all our scholars now have to reduce their bellies and become like Andrew Tate mm. and have to be fit and fighters. No, but don't, don't now complain and don't uh, create barriers for that to, to, to take place. Like I was in Pakistan, I went there twice and inshallah I'll be going again. Beautiful place. I, I believe uh, uh, Pakistan as a nation, removing the disgusting nationalism, the Pakistan as a nation and its people, they have the ability to lead the ummah. I believe that, yeah? I truly believe that. They have passion, they have intelligence, they just need good governance and leadership, right? And so on and so forth. And the point is this, 
I went to Pakistan and there was youth that you could tell they want to love Allah. Yes. But what does the media, the liberal media, what does it push to them? They have this clean shaven, articular academic that literally kind of pretends to be Muslim, right? Inshallah, mashallah, Allah mentions those words, but his whole basis, worldview, ethics is totally away from Islam. Sure. And then you have someone who, with all due respect, they don't want to look like is fat, overweight, can't articulate themselves, is frankly comes across as very imprudent and unwise, and so on and so forth. So they're giving the youth a false dilemma. So mm. even me, I'm empathizing. I don't want to be like that guy. I want to be like the clean shaven, articulate, smart, well-dressed guy. Do you see my point? Yes. So they're presenting this kind of uh, false narrative here. And what I was saying to the youth is that find your role models. There are role models that exist. And my advice would be to them is for them to become role models too and role people in your behavior. So you, you give the, the media no choice but to select the right people that are articulate, they're Islamic, they're orthodox, they're connected to the Quran and the Sunnah. Yeah. This is what we need. Do you see my point? I, maybe it was a bit fuzzy, these thoughts, but... The point is we need to become the role models, right? Yes. So even me, you know, I may have a kind of social media profile. So I need to be conscious now of the way I look Yes. for the sake of Allah. I need to be conscious of the way I express myself. I need to be conscious of the fact that am I using my ego here? Or, you know, am I, using, am I in line with the prophetic character or not? You know, I need to be conscious of the things that I say, how I enroll people in behavior. I need to be conscious of my passion. You know, am I instilling the right ways of being in the yes. youth? And the people that follow me, it's a huge responsibility. Um, but many of us, we don't take it seriously. Many of us, we let ourselves go yeah. uh, intellectually, physically, spiritually. And it's just become, I don't know, it's become as if it's a privilege now. Uh, yeah, I deserve this. You know, this is, this is my right to have this platform. No, you need to start aligning yourself with the prophetic way and becoming a true role model. Now, one would argue, well, even if they did that, the youth won't follow them. Well, try, try. Don't just shout and scream. When someone comes along and is very popular, try, do something, enroll people in your behavior. Let's see what happens. So you there were very critical of scholars and well, it's not role. just scholars, it's 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 more of du'at, I would guess, because okay. it's not the job of the scholars to actually engage with the youth on that level. Yeah. You know, we should we du'at should be at the feet of the scholars. Right. And it's the the du'at, the preachers, the students of knowledge that go out in the world. I'm talking to them mostly. Okay. So let's talk about Tarbiya. Let's talk about the young Muslim man and how he should embrace Islam. You know, how he should internalize the ideas and concepts and, and the mechanisms you talked about, you know, to deal with their own uh, internal nafs. If you were to design a, a curriculum, say, for example, a, a chain of schools um, were to come to you and say, Hamza, look, I, we want to design a curriculum specifically tailored for Muslim men, for young Muslim men. Apart from the basics of Islam, let's take that as a given, you know, Islam, you know, the faraid and, and the obligations and the tajweed and all of this will, will take as a given. What would be the top five things you would put into that curriculum? Very good. The, the first thing I would say is aqidah and Allah's names and attributes, which is combined really, really okay. understanding applied aqidah. Because sometimes when we discuss the understanding of creed, we we adopt a kind of... <sighs> We adopt a kind of, I don't want to use the word medieval because that sounds very modernist, yeah? <laughs> but what I'm trying to say here is we don't adopt the methodology of the scholars, we just adopt the statements. So when we get an Aqidah book, say it's Aqidah Asfahaniya or we take Aqidah Tahawiyya, whatever the case may be, that was written at a particular time. Yes, there are timeless principles in there, but that was written 
in a particular time for a particular audience. And what we need to learn to do is not just to stick to the statements, but learn to apply the aqidah in our current context. Right. And this is what we do at Sapiens all the time. Like we're not scholars, but we we help scholars take the great creedal knowledge that they've learned from the classical scholars mm. and to apply it. So we've become, if you like, the facilitators of applying creedal knowledge in a contemporary sense right. without deviating from the principles of the Quran and Sunnah. And you know what I mentioned earlier about the assumption, the ethical assumption of the LGBTQ narrative that they have self-ownership. Mm. So how does that go against the Islamic aqidah? Well, Allah's rububiyya, the fact that he owns everything. That's a very basic example, but that's a, an example of applied aqidah. Mm. So we need to teach our young men applied aqidah in Allah's names and attributes. Okay. And what I mean by Allah's names and attributes, basically to not only to enumerate them and memorize them, but to internalize them based on the hadith. Which is, for example, if, if Allah is Ar-Rahman, He is intensely merciful, then you should be as merciful as possible from a human's perspective. If Allah is Al-Mutakabbir, He is like in the majestic and the, the proud, then you should be totally humble. So you actualize His names and attributes in your life. And you make it real. So you make the Quran and Sunnah and the, 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 the creedal statements from the Quran and Sunnah real and applied in your life from an intellectual, spiritual level. Mm. That's a missing discourse at the moment. Really? And you learn Aqidah Tahawiyah. Go to most of the, the kind of I don't know, the institutes. And you learn it in a nice classical way, but you won't adopt the methodology of the classical scholars, which is applying it in your time. And that is one of the crises of our knowledge at the moment. That's number one. Number two, purification of the heart. This is without a doubt one of the most important things. Remember what I said earlier, you can't yes. plant a seed on a rock. And the heart, the, the qalb, the taqallub, it wavers, okay? And it has fitan. The fitan are shahawat al shubuhat, blameworthy desires. And destructive doubts And the heart have the heart has diseases Now our main diseases We mentioned them before Kibar, Hasad, Riya And Ujub mm. Ostentation Self-amazement Vanity Blameworthy jealousy And arrogance There are tools in the Quran and Sunnah To deal with these We need to give our youth these tools and, and give them the ability To recognize These diseases in their hearts And that they're able to traverse a path To to deal with these diseases in accordance to the Quran and the Sunnah. This is critical because this would affect everything in their life. Because in Islam, you, everything that you do is really a derivative of your heart state, not just your mind state, your heart state. Yeah, Whether it's your ibadah, whether it's the way you treat others, whether it's how you forgive, whether it's you react egocentrically and egotistically to videos. Mm. That's all because of what's going on here. It's one of the most important things. And this is based on the Kitab and the Sunnah. So the purification of the heart. Good. The third thing I would say is ikhlas. Yes, it's connected to purification of the heart, but it has to have its own focus. Right. Because ikhlas is the basis of everything. For your actions to be accepted in Islam, you have to have do it for the sake of Allah. And you, the action itself has to be in line with the sunnah of the Prophet What is ikhlas? How to develop ikhlas? These are critical things that people have to adopt, internalize. And it's going to be something that's going to exist with them until, the day, until they die. Yeah? The other thing I would say is, is ibadah, which is the fourth point, I believe. So what do I mean by ibadah? I don't mean the fara'id, five daily prayers, yeah. fasting Ramadan. I'm talking about, especially in the West, a Muslim man, and even a woman, right? But a, from the perspective of a Muslim man, he needs to have a routine, a routine, especially spiritual routine. So you have to, without a doubt, engage in the dhikr, the afkar of the morning of the, in the evening mm. and the du'as in the morning and the evening without Fail. This should be your oxygen. If you miss it one day, it, it, like part of you must have died. Yeah. 
that's how you should treat it because this is a protection for your heart. It gives you a sense of certainty. It gives you contentment. It protects you from fitting. It protects you from uh, trials and tribulations. I mean, there are so many istighfar. You know, it, it, you, you get forgiven. It purifies your heart. This is essential. It's an essential practice for someone to have this in their daily routine. The, the afkar in the morning and the evening and the du'as. It protects you. It preserves you. Mm. It strengthens you. It... It elevates you, it purifies you And also what they need to do is Do istighfar every day At least 100 times every day Yeah, This is without fail, that's one aspect right. The other aspect is That they should do tadabbur of the Quran Allah says do they, do they not ponder over the Quran Or the locks on their hearts You can mirror the meaning So the more tadabbur you do The more your heart becomes unlocked to receive his and guidance Tadabbur meaning Tadabbur means pondering over the Quran right. Because sometimes we focus on recitation, which is very good. It's a shifa. It's it's a form of glorifying Allah for sure. Mm. But I would emphasize tadabbur over recitation. Sure. Yeah, because Allah wants you to be guided. He wants you to understand His message. Yes. Engage with the meaning. So tadabbur technically is different from tafsir, but they've been used synonymously in some places in the tradition. But technically speaking, tafsir in a basic sense is meaning. Tadabbur is implication of meaning. So l understand the meaning from scholars, students of knowledge, the tafasir, the exegetical works, mm. and then now apply it in your life. Know that this word is from Allah and Allah wants something from you. Allah is talking to you directly. Mm. Even if it's a line a day, engage with tadabbur. Yeah? It's like an almost eternal ocean that you're swimming and you're finding gems. And they're going to impact your life in ways that you would never imagine. Allah mentions, do they not do tadabbur of the Quran? Or there are locks, many locks on their hearts. Mm. So the more tadabbur you do, your heart will become unlocked. And you receive things that you would never imagine. You need to engage with the book of Allah. And even in my life, I realized this. You know, we're adopting Christian philosophy at one point. We're going to philosophical abstract works. But everything was in the Quran anyway. Yeah. But that requires deep tadabbur. And you need guidance for that by engaging that process. Mm. So you need to do tadabbur. The other thing you need to do is, Try and wake up in the last third of the night. We know, you know, about Allah's mercy, what He what He asks us in the last third of the night, and so on and so forth. Allah is waiting for us, right? He's He's basically saying to us, "Connect with me, you know, uh, repent, ask from me." You know, the du'as at the time, the last third of the night, are like an arrow that never misses its target, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you can't wake up and do the full prayers, the tahajjud. Fine, wake up 10 minutes before Fajr and just, just supplicate. Even if you're half dead asleep, start to create that habit. Because mm. the changes that's going to have in your life are just something else, yeah? So you need to have a spiritual routine. So the morning and the evening, uh, the recitation of the Qur'an, the memorization of the Qur'an, the tadabbur of the Qur'an, this should be daily practice and, and some Islamic knowledge every day, even if it's 20 minutes. You could download on Kiddo a book on tafsir, a book on sirah, read it, even if it's five minutes. Every drop raises the ocean. Start to have these habits in your daily routine. So this kind of the ruhaniya, the spiritual stuff needs to happen. And right. also memorize the names and, and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and actualize them and understand their meaning and how you should respond to them, right? Yeah. This is critical as well. Yeah. So you should have these things in your life. And then as you get better and it becomes more of a habit, you can increase the time and you can increase the focus and so on and so forth. Mm. So you could start to hajjud once a month or once every two months. Right. And it could be once every week. Then it could be twice a week, right? But some things have to be daily. In my view, the daily thing should be is recitation of the Quran, tadabbur of the Quran, and also the, the athkar in the morning and the evening and the du'as. That's without fail. And in that, and I have a habit app and I try, sometimes I miss it, but I try and track myself so I'm on point. 
and try and include something concerning understanding the Quran, so Quranic Arabic. There's some really good tools out there that you can start learning the keywords of the Quran, the grammar of the Quran. My kind of pedagogical approach when it comes to these things is just focus on vocabulary, start learning the words, yeah, and then you pick up so much. And then we have natural grammar; it happens in our in our minds. Like one Egyptian uh, scholar, a student of knowledge, I think, told me this: is just focus on vocab because you have the internal grammatical structures anyway. That's one of the innate. Uh, it's called the innate. Theory, hypothesis, linguistic innate nativism or something. Yeah. yeah, I did it in one of my philosophy modules a long time ago. But basically, we have innate structures, grammar structures. So focus on vocab, and when you have some of these things in place, it will change your life. And the final point is physical activity. Don't be a lazy bum. Do something. I'm not saying you have to be big bodybuilder. Actually, bodybuilding is vanity. Yeah, it's a waste of time. Mm. Be functional with your fitness. Yeah, you have to know how to fight for sure. I'm not saying you have to be aggressive and hurt people. No. The Usuri principle There is no harming No reciprocating of harm But if you have to Protect your women folk You have to protect yourself Then you have to do that And plus it also Shapes your disposition uh, The way you walk You just have a sense Of confidence about you right? You could tell Who's a fighter I usually can tell I think You know this guy He knows how to fight He's strong He, he You know I'm not going to Mess with this guy yeah? It's the, the way you walk I think there was a study Done by um, by I think criminologists Or something Or psychologists mm. And they asked uh, criminals who would, who would you attack On the street or something and it wasn't to do with size or whatever. It was to do with the fact of how they walked. Yeah. They had a, a they had a, I forgot what the term was used. It was, they had an organized walk or something. Yeah. Because of the way you come across. Yeah. So it's very important. You know, the some recommended things like archery and swimming, horse riding, and, you know, you have wrestling, martial arts, kickboxing, whatever the case may be. Yeah. You need to be active as a male. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be big, and but you have to be able to, be an optimized version of yourself. So be strong, be healthy, eat the right foods. This is a very important part of your daily routine. So I'll put these things in place. So what about, I mean, what I've noticed there in your list uh, is an absence of intellectual thoughts. I mean, the absence of refuting liberalism, refuting the isms that exist around us. It's in it, there. It's in the yeah? applied aqidah. That's uh, why I, okay. I mentioned applied aqidah because right. it's a broad term, isn't it? So yes. when you do with things like liberalism, atheism, yeah. fundamentally this, this is an applied aqidah discussion. Yes. So how do you do with liberalism? And this, is, and this is why it's important to frame it as applied aqidah right. because if you frame it in abstraction, then the way you respond to it might be good intellectually in an abstract sense, but it might not be Islamic. Do you see the point? Yes. So it's very important to do it through a kind of... Uh, God-centric, Allah-centric fashion Meaning what does Allah and his messenger say about these issues Which yes, you need to know what liberalism is What the different forms of feminism are What the disputatious doctrines of liberalism are And so on and so forth But in order to deal with it It's an applied aqidah discussion sure. And that's why I gave a very brief example Concerning yeah. self-ownership Just to show that it can be applied Like pick, if you like for example as a test If you pick any topic Atheism mm. This is about a key aspect of Allah's tawheed Which is the tawheed of Rububiyah His divine creative agency Islam has a lot to say about this. The books of, of Aqidah talk about the contingency argument and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, Al-Ghazali even talked about a design argument as well. We have modern scholars that talk about these things. It's an applied Aqidah discussion. When you talk about liberalism, fundamentally liberalism is based on atom, atomism, the, primary of the primacy of the self. We don't believe in that, right? Uh, obviously, it's an Aqidah and also maybe kind of first principles, usul discussion as well because we have a view on society. It's not just based on individuals. It's a, it's a combination of Societal needs and individual needs as well. Yeah. You know the famous hadith of the hadith of the boat and so on and so forth. Yes. But it's applied Islam, yeah. So, uh, so it's the primaries of the individual. They believe in self ownership. No, Allah owns you. So this is all applied Islam, applied aqidah. 
So that so I would include it in that. And once you do it from that perspective, you become very robust because you know your Islam and you know how to apply it and you know how and you know what is kufr. These days, people don't know what Islam is. They don't know what the uh, Islamic aqidah is. They think Islam is just his identity marker and they may wear hijab or have a beard, have a thobe mm. and they get into academia. They don't have a solid grounding in, the, in a classical sense when an applied aqidah sense. And they engage with these ideas and like, oh, right, that's interesting. That sounds nice. Let me liberalize Islam. Mm. And they don't even know, right? And, and you see this with some academics, right? Yeah. I don't usually mention names. I'm not a fan of that. I don't do that on my social media, although sometimes I am tempted. We have some men who come across as practicing and they call people who have a certain position on feminism as the ah right. It's disgusting discourse because what are they assuming now? They're assuming that the leftist discourse is the correct discourse. Yeah. It's all bizarre. Why don't you just be Islamic and use Islam as a frame of reference? They don't even see it, right? So, you know, it's terrible. Barakalafiq. Finally, um, Hamza, so you, you've talked about mentoring. You've talked about the need to develop and nurture young Muslim men so that they uh, grow up in a balanced way and they develop these, all of these traits. And, and they have the tools to develop, to, to deal with their own personality traits that uh, you spoke of uh, earlier on. How is this practically done? I mean, where is it done? I mean, we, we look around most of our Muslim communities. Alhamdulillah, there's some great efforts and you of know course. sometimes you see some pockets and you'd say well this is a fantastic uh, project but it, as a general you know trend in the muslim community but partly maybe the reason why young muslim men are so free to adopt and accept any guy on on social media who wants to uh who wants to express thoughts about islam regardless of their um uh, their ability and regardless of you know uh, all of those points that you've mentioned, you know, and, and the awareness of these points. How do young Muslim men get access to this t level of of mentoring? Because it's a it's a it's an involved process. Yeah, it's this it's it's a social thing. Yes. Right? So, I mean, some of the answers that I've mentioned during this podcast they're intuitive because yeah. sometimes when you throw new questions. To be mature about it, sometimes you have to think hard for weeks, right? So yeah. some of the answers have been intuitive. So I want the audience to understand that and to take it, take it as if I'm trying to plant seeds in people's hearts and minds so they could continue their intellectual and spiritual journey. Yeah, mm. that's one thing that's important to say. The other thing is that a lot of the things that I've mentioned that this advice is definitely for me as well. That I need to remind myself of this. Yeah, and I'm not saying this as a kind of fake spiritual slogan trying to be humble. Literally, I need it as well. Yeah, so. It, we need role models. We need to revive the art of local scholarship, I think. Because when was the last time that people are in a mosque and they sit under under the feet of a scholar mm. and the scholar is actually teaching them something? We have kind of secularized education in a way. It's like massive theaters, it's these lectures. And also we need to change. And I think classically speaking, our learning was transformative, not just informative. So at the moment we have an informative type of learning. So here's a book, here's some statements. This is how you understand them and you pass an exam or an MCQ, a multiple choice question. That's informative type of learning. We need to arrive in um, transformative type of learning and transformation usually happens when you change someone's emotions, mm. someone's language and someone's behavior. So our learning, the abstract learning has to be uh, connected to our moods. How, how, how is it gonna change your emotions and moods? How is it gonna change the way you frame things, your language? And how is it gonna change your action? Has to be connected to that. Otherwise you won't have transformation. I give an example, bro. You can know all the ahadith, all the prophetic traditions, all of the ayat on dhikr, and you will never become a person of dhikr. You can know everything about Muslim masculinity. 
Yeah, everything. You can know the ins and outs, even the chains of narrations, even the, the ayat and the numbers and the chapter numbers and whatever the case may be. Quran chapter two, verse this, whatever. And you will never become a, a, a true uh, Muslim prophetic masculine uh, man. Mm. Knowing doesn't give rise to becoming in an abstract sense. Yeah, because the ilm in Islam is, it's not a secularized ilm. Ilm is not just like, oh yeah, I know this ayah, I know this hadith. Mm. Even Imam Malik, there's two narrations that I attribute to him concerning what knowledge is. It's a nur that Allah puts in your heart and it's not just it's not just memorization, abstract memorization. Yes, that may be the beginning of it, but that's not what ilm is. And when Allah talks about people of knowledge, what does he talk about? Those who stand in the prayer, they're fearful of their Lord, they're, they 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 um, you know hope in the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so on and so forth. They are people of ibad. And Allah even mentions uh, are those who know like those who don't know, right? And connecting it to you, your way of being, your awe of Allah, your God consciousness, your ibadah, your worship. So in Islam, ilm is connected to this way of being. And and in traditionally, that's how it was as well. And that was an, a transformative type of learning because the abstract learning was connected to people's emotions, their language, and their behavior. Like for example, you have classically, if you want, you know, even in Al-Azhar, I believe, right? When they wanted someone to study, they will actually get them to clean the toilets for six months. Hmm. Why are they doing that? Because they're preparing them for knowledge, right? The Humbling them, they're deconstructing them. Yeah, and we even see this today. Like for example, Sheikh Haytham Al Haddad, I had the amazing experience of um, being in retreats with him, in a retreat with him, and his retreat is actually designed like that. You wake up at four in the morning, you do your tahajjud, you stay awake, you read, do Quran, you get your Quran tested. Yeah, that's humiliation, right, to a certain degree. Um, you do your ishraq prayer, you uh, pray in jamaah, you. You know, uh, if someone is seeking leadership, that's actually taken away from them. But this, it's a deconstructive, like we had this visionaries retreat and it was a spiritual, uh, it was tired, you're tired, you had hardly any sleep, you're doing tajud, you're doing this, you're doing that, you got responsibilities and you get deconstructed, then reconstructed. That was a transformative process. No one wrote a book or an article that said, read this or here's a lecture and this is how you're going to change. It was a process. And we need to revive that type of process. It's part of our tradition. It served us well. It's, I believe, how the Prophet developed the Sahaba and the Sahaba developed the Tabi'in and so on and so forth. That is totally missing. And that is something, you know, I remember I gave a talk in Masjid Quba in Bradford years ago, 2008, I believe, right. responding to the Channel 4 documentary. And they had to ask permission from one of the Diobandi elders to let me in because, you know, I'm a new guy. Who the hell am I? I'm only Muslim, like six years or something. So they let me in the Masjid. And in the front rows were, I think, ulama. I am telling you, I nearly broke down crying after that lecture. Why? It was just the humility. And that's one good thing about the Diobani tradition. Their scholars are extremely humble. Yeah? Mm. And just the way he treated me and dealt with me, I mm. learned something from his humility that I would never read in a thousand volumes. Do you see my point? Yes. That we need to revive. How we do that, I don't have the answers. Yeah, But I do know there is a difference between informational learning and transformational learning. And Islam does focus a lot on transformational learning. And that, Generally speaking, I think is about changing someone's mood, emotions, how they frame things, their language. That's so important because sometimes even the way you describe things can change your being yeah? and also your behavior and your actions. If you could change even one of those, you get a transformation. If you change all three, it's fantastic. And the ulama actually knew how to do that. And the Quran dealt with that. And, you know, the Quran came to the Sahaba. It was like real for them. It was phenomenological, first person experience. They were living it and it changed them. We need to do the same thing. It's been an illuminating discussion. Thank you for your time today.
Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair.